The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Yeah, you're welcome along to the Sunday Papers. Joe Malloy with you this morning and we'll start with the back pages. So the Mail on Sunday, first of all, have Diogo Jota yesterday who was in fine form for Liverpool. They beat Southampton by four goals to nil. The headline is exceptional. Uh, Liverpool boss sings praises of Jota after Portugal striker lights up Anfield with a brilliant brace. So he scored two goals there. The first after just 97 seconds. An exceptional player, an exceptional boy, said Jurgen Klopp afterwards. We have the Sunday Independent Main picture is Tyke Furlong being smashed by two Ulster players. Uh, Ulster came away with the spoils yesterday at the RDS yesterday evening. Ulster stopped Leinster in their tracks. It was uh, Stuart McCluskey in the main there tackling Tyke Furlong. First victory at the RDS for eight years ends leaders' unbeaten run. And then the headline beneath that, uh, Rangnick planning clear out in January, which sounded like quite a dramatic headline that Ralph Rangnick would be planning to clear it in January although it seems really it's just Dean Henderson and Donny van de Beek who might be up for grabs Jesse Lingard more likely to leave in a free at the end of the season Sun Sport there's in quite a few of the back pages Ralphie Hallens so United want new boss to broker Erling Deal in short here it seems that Erling Haaland will be available next year there'll be a clause in his contract whereby he can be bought for 63 million sterling uh, Ralph Ragnick signed him previously and so they feel Manchester United that is that they may have an in with Haaland uh, similar on the back page of the Star, for instance, United will nick Haaland. I mean, if Rangnick allows them to get Erling Haaland, it will be uh, well worth the six months, regardless of how things go. The in is that he signed the striker for Orby Salzburg in January 2019 when he was sporting director. So there is a relationship there. Sunday Times, again, we have Liverpool yesterday at Anfield. Second best, they're second in the table. Liverpool thrashed Southampton to trail leaders. Chelsea by a point. And then Keane to FAI. Whatever happened to winning? This is Roy Keane. He was speaking at an event on Friday for the Kerry Hospice Foundation and he was asked about Stephen Kenny. Naturally, they're doing OK, he said of Ireland. And if OK is fine for everybody else in Ireland, good luck to them. Along the line at top level football, I thought winning was part of the package. Maybe I'm wrong. Football's about opinions. Kenny has the Irish press on his side, especially the Dublin lot. But at the top level, the game is about getting over the line and winning games and then the uh, Sunday World we're in good nick that's Michael Carrick we're in good nick ahead of the Chelsea match uh, fooling that money I think is the truth but uh, sounding a positive note there very happy to say we have Dion Fanning from The Currency hi Dion hi Joe how are you very well you're one of the Dublin lot Roy Keane's talking about by the that's way that's it Kleena O'Connor All-Ireland football winner with Dublin now immersed in the world of coaching with us as well hi Kleena hi Joe hi Dion so hi, great Kina. to have you all with us uh, Anything there in the front pages grabbing you? I mean, Ralph Rangnick is up for discussion. We have Roy Keane on Stephen Kenny. Inside, if you want to take the Roy Keane line on Stephen Kenny, inside Paul Rowan writes a follow-up piece. Dion, the FAI board meeting tomorrow for the first time in person in, uh, well, well over a year anyway. And Paul suggests that what is most likely, and this I would think is most likely, is that there will be a, a short extension given to... Uh, to Stephen Kenny, um, uh, to take him to cover the to cover him, take him through to the end of the uh, Nations League, um, and there might be people who would feel that there should be a longer extension. Um, there might be. I I actually for for uh, for what is routinely described as a kind of culture war now, and I can see I can see the argument that says you know Ireland has been burned before by giving managers 
long-term contracts just before things uh, went belly up and and they should be wary of doing that equally uh, I don't think there's I don't think there are many alternatives now I think maybe wait it's fine as long as you keep Stephen Kenny happy I don't think he has I think this is a job he wants to do if there were other alternatives for him maybe the FAI would be thinking differently clearly the way it has gone over the last few months has been very encouraging for for Irish football and for Stephen Kenny, um, and uh, he is, in my view, the person who should be doing the job. I think Roy Keane, uh, his time is you know like do we, we I, like every time we end up going over Martin O'Neill and, and Roy Keane and Trapattoni and Mick McCarthy over and over again on this. So I don't think. That's the point. I, it's worth doing that again. I think what I, what what is happening under Stephen Kenny is far more exciting, um, and I think one of the things that is interesting in, in Paul's piece is that you know they're still looking for uh, a main sponsor. That seems to be something that should be achievable uh, with this squad, with the the makeup of this squad, with the fact that they have uh, players that are exciting and that people are excited about seeing. Um, and people are excited about watching the Ireland team. So um, I think it's like, you know, again, just on, on the culture war thing, it always strikes me when people bring up culture wars uh, that there's somehow, like the thing about an awful lot of culture wars is there is one side of the culture war that is actually <laughs> is right. Um, like the culture war in, in, in Britain between leavers and remainers, I'm afraid remainers are right. They may become annoying and they may have very irritating placards when they go on their marches, but they are right. In the war, in the culture war in America between Trump and between the Republican Party and the Democrats, I'm going to tell you, I, you know, the Democrat, the people who are opposing Trump are right. And I think when it comes to the culture war, uh, it's with Stephen Kenny, people who want Stephen Kenny and believe in what Stephen Kenny is doing are right. Um, so I think this is this is something that has to be embraced for Irish football. The alternatives, there are no alternatives. And uh, I hope, you know, it, it continues. I, at the same time, I think the contract is a bit of a red herring. I think it's something that doesn't really matter. But it's important that what Stephen Kenny does is, is continues. And while we're getting carried away, Joe, Jason Knight reminds me a little bit of young Roy Keane. But while we're in full buzz at the moment, I think I'll just throw that in there and, and heap unnecessary pressure on the show. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Paul Rowan says that Chief Executive Jonathan Hill was putting the final touches to the report over the weekend. The board members expected to get advanced sightings of the findings, but all the signs are pointing towards Kenny's contract being renewed. The duration, as you said, is the potential sticking point. Kenny's contract runs to July, a little more than halfway through the UEFA Nations League campaign. And since the manager has set himself a goal of Ireland topping their group, despite not knowing the opponents involved yet, there is some suggestion that his contract be extended only until September when the series of matches will be completed. Liam Brady and Ortiz is a prime mover of this idea. And you alluded to this point that Paul Rowan makes, Dion. Since Kenny's agent is unlikely to be inundated with job offers, the FAI ha- holds a strong hand. Packy Bonner, the only board member to have both played and coached at a high level, will be listened to particularly closely, says uh, Paul Rowan. His views will inevitably help sway other board members, even though he uh, sought to play down the significance of his role recently when he said he was encouraged by recent progress. Kleena, what's your read on all this and the notion of 
extending Stephen Kenny's contract, but only until September. I think the extension till September is probably the compromise, really, isn't it? Because managers and coaches and, and even players, you want a bit of certainty that, OK, we, we've time and we're, we're being given the backing and the confidence to go and continue this process. But I think given everything um, and Dion's point about not getting stuck with long term contracts, which has been problematic in the past, I think that the safe option and the compromise is to extend it and is to see how the nation league goes and see if the the current form and and progress and the i suppose the expectations that stephen kenny has said himself about top of the group if they transpire and if they do then you're probably in an even better position as stephen kennedy kenny to to negotiate a continuation then if if the summer goes well because mm. it all holds at the minute it, it all suggests that the summer will go well so I think in some ways he, he might do better just waiting and renegotiating then at the end of the summer. And do you think, Dion, it undermines him to, in a sense? So there's almost a degree of the jury is still out. You're still on trial here. But I think you're always on trial as international manager. I don't think, like this is, this, you know, from both sides of the argument, I think this is, this is the, uh, the issue with um, international football in particular, but also a manager like Stephen Kenny, who probably is always having to answer, um, you know, the criticism or this, you know, dealing with stuff that like, he, he, is this a, is this a step up for him? Is this a, too, a step too far for him? Whatever, all that kind of stuff that comes with an appointment from within the League of Ireland, if you like. And I think that doesn't go, that does that go away because, uh, you give him a long-term contract. Does it mean that people won't? They won't ask about a contract because he'll have it. But if Ireland lose the Nations League games um, in in June, then people will be saying, "Why have the FAI given this guy a long-term contract?" So I don't think the, everything as an international manager is kind of framed by that. That's why I felt even when Ireland lost to Luxembourg, it was important. To, you know, you could criticize Stephen Kenny, but actually. You very quickly get into a situation where you're saying, well, the manager has to go. Like, it's very hard to criticize, like, football and international football, especially, like, it is, it is, it's not like other jobs. Like, this comes back to, you know, we might talk about Manchester United in a minute, but when people would say, oh, you know, Gary Neville can't, you know, it'd be wrong for him to call for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to be sacked, sacking a manager is, is, is part of the, is part of the managerial process. In yeah. football, it's like you know, it's like it's it's not it's not like a normal job. So when people talked about Stephen Kenny in Ireland and look and after the Luxembourg defeat, that was kind of the thing that was that was the logical endpoint of a lot of the criticisms was well, we'll just get rid of this guy mm. and try somebody who isn't going to do this. So yeah. that always is there. I'm afraid that's always part of the of the debate for for an international manager. Yeah, that September offer does catch the eye, although further down in the piece, Paul Rowan does say, however, there doesn't appear to be any appetite for extending the trial period any longer, unless the FAI's poker face chief executive strongly re recommends such a course of action. So maybe that does intimate that actually they don't want the next eight, nine months to be a case of, well, do we give him a contract? Do we not give him a contract? So maybe that suggests a longer term deal. Either way, we'll find out tomorrow. Or maybe we won't find out. The board certainly will have their uh, meeting tomorrow. So that's page 10, Judgment Day the headline on Paul Rowan's piece. 
Clean, I'm sure you were curious to read the Jim Gavin interview on pages 14 and 15 of the Sunday Times. I must be totally honest, when I saw Dennis Walsh interview with Jim Gavin on the front page of the Sunday Times, I thought to myself, well, best to look, Dennis, because nobody's cracked it yet, really. I would say this was a very, very uh, good effort. We got a, a glimpse behind the curtain a touch more, I think. I think so. I, and and same as yourself, when you see it at the on the front page in the header, you think, oh, God, that's a, a bit of a surprise because it's not usual. And the, the interest is, well, what is he actually going to say? And is he actually going to say anything at all? So I, I was pleasantly surprised. And I think, I suppose, for me, you got a little bit more or a little bit more sense of... Um, I think Jim's general approach and the general principles, it's its nothing we didn't know, uh, but I just think some of the very basic principles that Jim Gavin would have used as a coach and in coaching in general, they seem very, very simple. And I mean, when he, I think because he didn't give so, he didn't give a lot away when he, he was managing the footballers. Everyone thought there was these big, big secrets about how it was done. But like one of the key things, and it's it's used as the heading of the pieces. If I shouted at a player to get in position, then it reflected how per, how poorly he'd been trained. So everyone talked about how Jim was so silent on the sideline and he didn't give anything away. Yeah, because he felt that you know the job was done. Then you go out and 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 that was a, a key theme in this piece is how to how to prepare players. You you put in boundaries, you put in structures, you put in principles of play. And then you go and let them play. And your job then isn't to talk them through everything. Um, and I think that's really important. It's really important. It's it's such a basic premise of coaching, but it was such a key a key tenant, I suppose, for him. Um, I think that was that yeah. was a, a key piece. Um, and the other bit then that that came out as an important piece for him was that idea of the just culture and how we lent on aviation for that. That everybody's going to make mistakes at some point, and and that's. Everybody has to be able to report mistakes and talk about mistakes and deal with them without finger pointing, without ego, without defensiveness. And then if you have that within a culture and within a team in in any environment, it can become incredibly productive. So I think it seems like Jim has a couple of little, um, how would you say, nuggets or things that he is is now willing to share, uh, those sort of principles of how he approached things when he was coaching. Yeah. Certainly the reporting on mistakes, a lot of it is based in his time in aviation. You're legally obliged to report mistakes in aviation. And he almost wanted to take that culture into the GEA setup that, you know, we're operating here on the basis that mistakes will happen. We just need to dive deeply into why they happen and to make sure they don't happen again. Because on the the point, you you know, you jumped in first on his point about if I'm screaming at a player to get into a position on the field, and that's a reflection of how poorly they've been trained. Because Dennis Walsh does point out that Jim Gavin won 90, 90% of his Dublin matches, but about a third of those games were decided by a goal or less. So mm. he does write, there must have been days when his heart rate changed, but we were guessing. You couldn't tell. There were no jerky movements. And Gavin says, it's not that I was emotionless. I wasn't harboring any useless emotions. There is a difference. Of course you have emotions. I mean, the game is in the balance. What I was taught as a young man learning how to fly an aircraft is that if the engine goes on fire, you essentially sit on your hands and you observe what's happening and you methodically deal with the emergency. And so that's probably an insight into what was going through his mind when he was watching so many of those matches which did go down to the wire. I mean, what jumped out to me and, and Dean, I'll bring you in in a 
Sec is the attention to detail and the preparation. So, for instance, the All-Ireland uh, final day 2019, Jim Gavin and his management team, the day before the All-Ireland final, I don't know we're opposition doing this, to be honest. So the day before the 2019 All-Ireland final, Jim Gavin and his team get together to plan what happens if there's a replay. So what were the odds? What did that matter, writes Dennis Walsh? The plan wasn't a skeleton one either. It had flesh and a pulse. So on the morning of the All-Ireland final the next day, the players not in the matchday squad were put through a training session on the understanding that, that a replay might never happen, but it might involve one of them. Gene Rock obviously kicks the stoppage time equaliser that takes it to a replay. The plan then goes into um, effect. Extra masseurs had been stationed in the stands at Crow Park. As soon as the final whistle blew, they made their way to the Dublin dressing room. Each masseur had already been assigned their list of players. Hot food and ice baths had been on standby. They arrived in Crow Park on command. A pre-prepared text message was sent to the parents of all the players. The post-match banquet had been postponed, but Dublin GA would still like to host them for dinner at the team hotel. The players would be eating in a different room. Their Royal Island suits would be left hanging untouched. The train was still moving full speed. Now, I don't need no Dion. I have my doubts most teams weren't preparing that methodically for an All-Ireland uh, final. But there you go. That was a really interesting glimpse, I think, behind the scenes. Yeah, no, there's, there's a load of um, fascinating stuff. I did think that the line about the uh, engine failure in an aircraft, I did kind of find myself reading that, wondering if maybe Jim Gavin could go into politics in Ireland because, uh, you know, there's a line where he says, the last thing any of us would want in an aircraft that had engine failure is the captain screaming down the public announcement system, the engine is on fire, we're all going to die. And I was kind of thinking that seems to be how, you know, Irish government is being led these days, you know, panic as a as a government, as a lever of, of, of a policy lever. Um, but on the uh, general point, no, I thought that was a fascinating, that oh, the opening of the interview about the, the replay um, and the preparation for that was really, you know, it does tell you that the preparation and, the, and again, and also you would, you, you could argue the resources that Dublin had available, have available to them or had available to them. But, um, it, it does go to this kind of endless, you know, this re- restlessness and this quest for perfection that Gavin seemed to bring to everything. And I know from, you know, talking to Paul Flynn, who's been doing stuff with, with us at The Currency, and Paul recently interviewed Gary Keegan, and they talked about this. And, you know, all these, all this kind of uh, curiosity Gavin had about, like, just finding an extra bit of, an, an extra percent or an extra value in performance somewhere along the line. And in that piece with Gary Keegan, I remember uh, um, uh, um, you know, he said, Paul said that you know, one of the things they used, like mindfulness and meditation and things like that, this was an area Gavin was really curious about, but he didn't know how much extra value it would give you, but he was still was prepared to put an awful lot into it because he felt it, it might do. And again, that's a bit like this preparing for the replay. Who knows what those preparations, in case of something that might not happen, would give you, but he's still prepared to put an awful lot into it. Mm. And uh, and again, and also that thing, and I think this is fascinating about Jim Gavin compared to maybe an awful lot of the people who might come along and try and imitate Jim Gavin, in that there was a huge amount of trust in it. So like he has this, you know, there's an eye in it where he says, one of the leadership hard rocks is that to gain control, you have to give control away. And that's about trusting the players. And again, 
this is something that's touched on in the interview, like with, with, with Gaelic footballers, you're also dealing with people who have jobs, who have, you know, there's an awful lot, there are other elements of management in an amateur sport than there are in, in, a, in a professional sport. And Jim Gavin seemed to be very um, intent on getting that trust and get that culture then where you could, were happy to acknowledge those mistakes like you do in aviation, came from people feeling trusted um, and I think probably a lot of the time people who come along, they saw the control of the Dublin team. They saw the control that Jim Gavin would ha have over those players and lesser people would see that that's a question of keeping, holding onto control tightly. Mm. Whereas his thing seemed to be actually let it go a bit, trust it and it will come back to you. There's a point here. In Gavin's final year, Stephen James Smith, the Dublin poet, playwright and spoken word artist, gave a performance for the squad. At the end of the show, he shared his email address. A handful of Dublin players got in touch. What emerged from that contact were poetry workshops. It wasn't for everyone, but that wasn't the point. Another door had been opened. Talks about the Saturday training. If the team trained at nine or ten o'clock on a Saturday morning, Gavin would be there at seven a.m., wouldn't leave till after three in the afternoon. In, the, in that block of time, though, he knew what he could accomplish. He was talking at that point about how he divided his time out. And he does say, if we were doing this professionally, you'd probably still be in the job. But the reality is, in an amateur framework, you still have a career. There were a lot of sacrifices and there were choices you needed to make. In terms of the cycle of the team, I felt it was best to hand the bat on. on. So it is interesting, he says, look, if I was a professional, I'd probably still be in the job. And I suspect the reason for the interview becomes apparent towards the end. He played in the recent uh, European Seniors Tour Pro-Am. Paul McGinley invited him up to Donegal and uh, he won. And so the outcome of winning is that he qualified for the Legend Series in Mauritius, which is part of a glittering 10-person field, includes Keith Wood, Robbie Feller, Gordon Strachan, Gavin Hastings, Andrew Strauss, amongst others. Paul McGinley told me to get the head down and start practising. Gavin took it as an order. He began to work with two instructors, one for a short game, and on weekends he started playing with his 86-year-old dad, Jimmy, at Craddockstown Golf Club. In three months he has knocked a staggering five shots off his handicap down to 11. The Legend Series, it's a charity event. It's in Mauritius next March. Gavin will be playing for his share of a €100,000 pot. His nominated charity is Dieter MND, the foundation set up by his late friend Anto Finnegan to support research into motor neuron disease, the condition that claimed Finnegan's life a few months ago. Whatever he wins in Mauritius, it's Gavin's plan to at least match it with a GoFundMe page on his return. Another mission, another plan. Five shots off his damn handicap. I mean, that's the most impressive thing in this whole article. So, uh, Kleena, do you have um, poetry recitals in your various teams? I mean, where are you here on the, the Gavin experimentation spectrum? Yeah, poetry and orchestral workshops and watercolour <laughs> painting and all sorts. Yeah, um, well, I, I think it's part, part of the part of the whole process of, uh, I don't know, getting to know players and letting them to be a little bit more than uh, footballers. And, and so those four or five players or whatever who went to followed up with the poetry workshops. So that so that's that's four or five players who are engaging, connecting, doing something different uh, together that isn't football, but getting to know each other. So I think that anytime you can do that with players, we're always encouraging them, you know, so socialize together and be, be cohesive as a, as a, uh, as a team or as, as peers. And I think the, the traditional way to address that is uh, let's go for a few drinks after a game or let's go for a round of golf, but they're, this is an example of very individual and creative ways of creating that cohesiveness in the group, trying to tap into other interests. Yes. And I, and I think as well, Kleena, 
it shows a wisdom in his part. I mean, they go for the drinks after the training session of the match. Tradition is a good one in lots of ways and people loosen up and talk to each other. But also people have an inner life and people have a longing for different types of pursuits and something like poetry will probably really engage four or five, as you said, players and that'll be a really interesting pursuit for them. And it's a very uh, modern way of thinking, but I think an enlightened way of thinking on his part. I think so. And I think like one of the things is, and Dianne, you mentioned about Paul Flynn talking about uh, Jim's curiosity. I think he's a very open-minded person mm. um, and and very wi- like willing to explore and try and doesn't make me better. If I know what my ultimate goal is, is to run a successful football team with, with happy and content and, and successful young men, well, what contributes to that? And if that's poetry, so be it. If it's mindfulness, so be it. Like whatever it is, if it, if it serves our purpose and makes us better, then then let's explore it. Nothing is sort of off the table. And in many ways, it's so simple, but we forget about it. And even your point about the the preparation for the replay, like all of that stuff, having massages straight after the game, good quality food, like all of that is very simple principles of recovery. But who would have gone or who goes to the effort to make sure it's ready to go? That you can ju- it's an organizational thing. Mm. So the, the knowledge is there, but it's about putting it in the putting in the effort to, to build a system that can use the knowledge very, very efficiently and effectively. Yeah. Well, it was this weekend two years ago that he stepped away. So mm. he's uh, still flying. Recently promoted, it said, in the Irish Aviation Authority. So uh, not surprisingly, his career is continuing to progress. So that's Jim Gavin, pages 14 and 15 in the uh, Sunday Times. Dion, you were curious to see the coverage of Ralph Rangnick, Manchester United's new manager after uh, this afternoon when Michael Carrick takes them to Stamford Bridge. He reads as yeah. a very impressive character. He does. Um, no, he is. He is a very impressive character. I, uh, I'm i struck by, um, you know, like the thing I, f- I find the current Manchester United uh, structure quite fascinating um and you know there is a general general acknowledgement that they have they have arrived at a, a a good decision here you know and like the rob draper in the mail on sunday the headline on the piece is he wouldn't sign ronaldo avoids picking tattooed players and falls out with owners but ranyak is still the man for united um now there is a kind of a um i suppose you might qualify as a recency bias but uh uh, there is uh, a sense when something new or uh, journalism is kind of addicted to something new and we always want something new and I wonder how many headlines and stories like that were written when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer became permanent Manchester United manager I imagine again there was a, a sense of euphoria around uh, around his appointment given the circumstances when it happened um, so that is just a, a natural thing to happen Um but what I'm struck by um, is for an interim manager, a guy who's coming in for six months and now there will be a consultancy uh, role after that, whatever whatever that really means. Um, like I just struck from Jonathan Norcroft piece in the Sunday Times, it says, you know, for, it says he, uh, he blew competitors such as Ernesto Valverde and Rudy Garcia away. He captivated a panel led by Ed Woodward that would be a that would be a warning sign in my book, but uh, he he did captivate that panel anyway. And then he said, you know, uh, 
Ranyak awaits work permit clearance to begin tackling a fascinating brief. Six months as United stand-in coach, followed by two years as, as a consultant. He's, he is being invited first to mend the club's football, then move from workshop to design room and produce a blueprint to prevent it from getting broken again. Both are steepling tasks in their own right, yet Ranyak's unique history suggests he might just pull them off. That's an awful lot of stuff to get through in six months. There's a hell of a lot of stuff to get through. Mm. Um, and it would suggest, you know, this would make more sense if you were saying, right, he's here for three years, um, which he may be. And again, you know, it does suggest that, you know, the, the story on the front page of Sunday Independent that they're going to let players go, go on his behalf. He's remodeling the squad. Um, Eric Ten Hag is mentioned as a more likely um manager when when Ranić steps into his consultancy role than Pochettino so he isn't coming in really as an interim like this may be they are they are betting on him to a, a bigger degree than just saying do this job for 6 months to buy us time because the the scope of what he's been asked to do is much greater than that yeah so um that's the thing that strikes me Same. as I hadn't, as, as kind of I hadn't fully appreciated that, that either. So Rangnick is getting the job for six months, but he is also, as Dion says, staying on for two years as a consultant and by all accounts blew them all away on the Tuesday. So he's actually going to be around here and on the scene for a long time. Now, Northcroft writes that there's Darren Fletcher as technical director. There's uh, Murta, John Murta as a football director. And so it gets a bit crowded with Rangnick being, I'm not quite sure what. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. But he is going to be a big part of Manchester United for the next two and a half years now. And I hadn't realised either. Chelsea offered uh, Rangnick the manager's job when Frank Lampard departed. He gave what uh, Northcroft says is a sparkling, I mean, boy, can this guy do interviews, a sparkling uh, 90-minute interview with Peter Cech and Marina Granskavia. But they wanted him for only four months because they wanted Tuchel long-term. So Rangnick uh, stepped aside. He told me, I can only congratulate Thomas and Chelsea for their choice. So... He is going to be around for two years. On the, the Ronaldo headline and the tattoo headline, I thought, wow, this is interesting. To be fair, the context is the Ronaldo point was when he was at Leipzig and his point was, well, we can't bloody afford him. And we're about team as opposed to individuals. And also, I mean, he did say Ronaldo was getting too old then. And that was back uh, six, seven years ago. And on the tattoo point, he says, I'm not signing the players with tattoo. If I say it's a coincidence, this is not quite the truth. For the style of football we play, again, this is at uh, Leipzig we need team players. We don't need players who, after they score, the only thing they're interested in is pointing to their name and celebrating with themselves in front of the supporters. They should at least celebrate with the guy who gave the assist. And he said, of course, this is not necessarily to do with tattoos, but then we need to discuss why do people have tattoos all over their body? It's got to do with being exceptional and trying to attract attention. I'm not, I'm not asking a player before we meet, show me your body where you have your tattoos. Maybe some of them have to have, to have tattoos and at least they don't have them where you can see it everywhere. I mean, geez, he's in the wrong industry, Cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. I think so. But it's interesting. I mean, he's clearly a fellow with very strong opinions and very much about the team. And like in both the, the Northcroft interview and the piece by Rob Draper, there's mention of this sort of mutual plan when we have the ball, team players, you celebrate with the guy that gave the assist. So this sense of everybody working together. Um, and even when he talks about himself, he's um, when, you know, he's sort of challenging the idea that he isn't a team player. Um, he is saying that uh, I am a team player. I know my reputation is different, but it's just not true. 
He admitted being single-minded in his roles with Hoffenheim and during initial phase in Leipzig, but only because the owners asked me to bring the clubs to the highest possible level as soon as possible, and therefore I could not just wait for things to happen. But we all achieved. But what we all achieved was a result of a team that worked together. So, it, like, I think that's that's really important. And you're saying about where, if he's there for three years, and all these other people who are already there. Um, yes, he wants to be a team player, but he's not going to sit around and wait for things to happen, which is maybe where controversy and, and a bit of the challenges will arise. But having said that, I mean, sometimes you just need somebody to, with that single-minded approach, I suppose, to, to not accept anything other than you've asked me to change, you've asked me to, to bring this thing forward, so we're going to do it. And simple as, not, not just sit around and talk about it. The thing I'm really fascinated in is he's, by all accounts, I mean, he's been one of the real architects of Gegen Pressing. He's a hero of Tuchel. He's, uh, or sorry, to, yeah, he's a hero of Tuchel's. He's a hero of Klopp's, an inspirational figure. I mean, Ronaldo and high pressing just doesn't work, Dion. And that's going to be one of the initial things which is going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah, well, I think there's, there's a number of things in that because Manchester United in the Ed Woodward era have pursued um, the individuals and they've pursued names uh, over a kind of team philosophy. Now they kind of uh, rode back on that a bit during the sort of, for a point during the Solskjaer era, but then it was turbocharged again in the summer when they signed Ronaldo. And, you know, I don't know how much Solskjaer had to do with that. It was the kind of, um, it, it was a signing made by the kind of United family, if you like. And um, uh, I don't know if, um, it, it, like, this will tell us an awful lot about where Manchester United sees itself because, you know, we have a story uh, on Friday, I think it was, that, you know, a number of the United players were unhappy that they hadn't received a WhatsApp notification letting them know that Ranić was, was going to be their new manager onto, into the WhatsApp group. Now, maybe there's, there is probably a communication issue there too, but they're also, it will it will say a lot about the... Uh, the power structures and the empire, the empires that have been built within Manchester United. If Ranić comes in and tries to do what he wants, what he tries to do at every club he's at, so if he can do that, the people are going to have their noses put out of joint, and people are going to feel a little bit challenged and threatened. But if he can't do that, it will tell you again that there is something. There is a there is a different structure and a different kind of. Uh, model in play at United, um, and that maybe it isn't it isn't for a manager with a kind of overarching philosophy like Ranić's. Yeah, you'd increasingly start to wonder then who it is for. So, Kleena, we had Jim Gavin at fifty. Padraig Harrington turned fifty in August. Page eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen of the Sunday Independent. He's uh, reflecting on life more so than golf with Paul Kimmage. I mean, he tries to reflect on a lot on golf. Kimmage tries to drag him back to life, I think, is the tone of this. I mean, I was, I, I when I saw the interview advertised last night, I thought, well, we're going to get a review of the Ryder Cup year and get behind the curtain and what happened across mm-hmm. the Ryder Cup year and across those few days. It's not really that at all. It's a far more philosophical chat. Yeah, it was It was refreshing, to be honest, um, from that point of view. Um, and as you said, I think... Ha- ha- in some ways, Harrington seems a little bit uncomfortable even at the start, trying to go bring in golf references, and and Paul keeps keeps pulling them back, pulling them back. No, no, we want to talk about being fifty and life, and and all of as you said the philosophical stuff. 
Um, I, I thought it was nice. It was, it just seemed, you get, a, I don't know, I, let, I you finish it and you think, of the, you get a real sense of a, of a steady person. Mm. So someone who's an incredible sports person, but really, really steady and grounded. And one thing that really struck me was his, he was talking about his lifestyle with his wife and his kids and, and how they seem to have made it work. Um, and that they they really understand what their lifestyle is. He's he's uh, talking about. Um, I think they bought they bought an apartment and he spent the week cleaning it. At the end of it, he's like, "Well, I'm never doing that again." And and his wife was like, "Yeah, you're not. Get out. You know, go back to the practice screen because, you know, rather than pretending that he's something he's not, and he's describing other people, you know, the golfers ringing their partners, saying, "Oh, I'm having a terrible time when they're on tour, and they're probably not probably having the time of their life," but understanding that what it what it is to be a professional golfer and how you make that work as a career and the longevity of his career and he's talking about his kids and saying that uh you know yes he is away but when he's home he's home and he's there and he's doing everything for them and not justifies it but says sometimes you know he thinks he spends more time with them and there's a better connection than somebody who's going to work at 7 a.m and coming back at 8 p.m so he he just to me, seems somebody who's very content with how he runs his lifestyle mm. um, and how he's running his career. There's a point with Harrington I always find fascinating. I remember chatting to him when he was isolating in a hotel in the States when he'd been diagnosed with COVID. And so it was a good spell alone in a hotel room. And I remember asking him, have you been reflecting on things, you know, turning 50 this year? Have you done some writing or got a journal out or put down some thoughts or anything in that vicinity? And I remember being surprised. He said, no, 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 I don't. I don't ever go too deep in my head. And this is a man who will spend hours thinking about the depth of the grooves on his wedge. You know, he will pick golf apart to an insane degree. And I've always been struck by the fact he doesn't seem not interested, but he seems wary of examining himself in great depth. And this comes up again over the course of the interview, where Kimmage asks, have you thought about who you are? Now, again, you would anticipate that somebody with Harrington's mind would say, yes, I've really thought about who I am and my place in the world and what I'm about. But he says, no, definitely not. I'm not a person who, and then it's dot, dot, dot. And then he goes off to, on a tangent. He says, I turned down any sort of open top parade when I won the majors. I don't like that side of things. And Kimmage says, that's not what I asked. Who are you? And Harrington says, I don't know. You're here to figure that out. I mean, that's a dangerous proposition if you want Paul Kimmage to figure out who you are. I, I'm not signing up for that uh, routine. <laughs> and Paul said, uh, you said you hadn't thought about it. Harrington says, no. You said definitely not. Harrington says, I don't want to think about that stuff that can complicate your head. I'd rather do than think of the greater scheme of things. Like it fascinates me with my golf, that, dot, dot, dot. Paul Kimmage interrupts. We're not talking about golf. And Harry says, but this applies to the mental side. And Kimmy says, no, no, golf. When is the last time you did something that was really disappointing? When's the last time you hurt someone? And Harry says, no, I can't think of anything. So going back to the golfing analogy, Kimmage, I don't effing want you to go back to golf, which is an insight into the interview, I think. But that has always struck me about Harrington Dion, that his, his deeply analytical mind doesn't particularly want to examine life the way he examines golf, or certainly himself. It's not that he's not a deep thinker, but it's always struck me about him. Yeah, it's I would like this is this is an exceptional piece. Like it's, you know, it, I I don't I see it like it is everything 
both of you said about like in terms of an insight into Harrington, but I also think it's it's a conversation, but it's an ongoing conversation between two men, like you know, and it is it is like you know you say you had your like I I'm I'm not a keen follower of golf, Joe. So like when I saw this first last night, I was like, oh, Paul Kimmage is interviewing uh, Porrick Harrington again, like w- like why would you do that uh, again? And like I couldn't have been more wrong about that because like the beauty of this is that he's doing it again and there is this deep conversation between two people and as you say you know Harrington saying to him that's up to you to figure out like you know that's not that comes from as you know the 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 comfort and the trust of you know having had these series of conversations and this ongoing uh relationship and you know and I like there is that thing you know like I find that sometimes when you interview somebody, sometimes, especially if they go very well, the first instinct I have is I, I'd like to interview them again right now hmm. because now I actually feel I've got all the questions. Having done the interview, I've got all the questions I would actually now like to ask again. And uh, I think this is what you get in this interview. It is two people kind of dealing with mortality, dealing with death, dealing with, you know, aging, um, and you know it is it is it is an interview with Harrington, but it could only be done in this kind of instance by, by somebody like by, not somebody like Paul Kimmage, but by Paul Kimmage. Um, and I do think like that is it is fascinating how like I love that as well. The thing you both talked about how Kimmage keeps taking. You know, I don't want to talk about golf. And again, there's a confidence in that. You know, like here I'm going to go and take. I'm going to do an interview, and you know it's in the sports pages and it's headed golf. And it's like, I don't want to talk about golf. And we all know that, like, these people are more interesting when you get them onto things that aren't, you know, necessarily the sport they want to talk about. And Kimmage is dragging him, kicking and screaming into other areas. And it does remind me, Harrington, in that there is the great line in, in the Philip Roth book, American Pastoral, is when he talks about this, uh, the guy who was a sports star, the Swede, who was a teenage sports star when, he, when the Philip Roth character was in school. And he realizes when talking that he has no reflective gene. He has nothing that he doesn't actually reflect on his life. And he has this great line where he says, irony would be a kink in the swing for a guy like the Swede, you know, and that's sense of self-reflection. That's kind of, you know, that's for losers. You know what I mean? The idea that you would agonize and fret over yourself and who are you? That's what, that's what drags you down. And now Carrington has managed to do that in terms of his golf game without ever like, you know, Lena mentioned uh, the cleaning story, which is very funny, but there's also there in terms of, uh, you know, the birth of his children and, uh, you know, the like, you know, uh, Harrington, uh, you know, he missed the first uh, birth of his first child because he was in America and he said, I was there for Kieran until Caroline's contractions got shorter. I said, you know what? Your sister would really like to be in here. I'll go get her. <laughs> As Susie went in, there are some things I have no interest in seeing. Uh, you were there and you ran out, Kimmich says. Oh, yeah, why would I want to go through that? Why would I want to see that? It's, and Kimmich says, it's all about me. No, not at all. You didn't want to see your son take his first breath, what, what your wife had to go through. Why would I want to see what my wife had to go through? Now, I, <laughs> that, that, you know, the, the number of people, that may be something that people actually look and go, that is a very unreconstructed 
approach to life that a man would say, I don't want to be here. Um, but it is it is actually providing an insight into Harrington uh, in in many ways. And actually, and, and his refusal to engage with that is, is as insightful as if he sat there and talked to you about his life philosophy. Yeah, because it, later on when they are talking about mortality and he, he was saying, I'd rather have a good 70 to 80 years than a bad 70 to 90. It's about quality of life. And he, Paul Kimmich says, what about God? And he says, you know, for somebody who earlier on says he doesn't like to reflect on himself, there is huge self-awareness there. Because he says, well, if you go to bed and don't wake up, your death's like a light switch. You don't need faith. But if you have a slow death and you have to think about the end for a period of time, it's difficult if you don't have faith. So as disturbing as my father's death was to to us, it wasn't to him. And that's because of the time he put into his faith. And then he's asked about his own faith. And <laughs> Harrington says, and I wonder how many people would admit this. I wonder how many people would admit this. I think I absolutely believe in God because it's convenient for me to. It's convenient for you. Yeah, I couldn't handle thinking about the alternative, so it's easier for me to believe. It makes my day to day life happier. The alternative would drive you mad. So it's convenient not to overthink it, um, which is interesting because Kleene, it's not, we, you know, it's not like he's, he's such a deeply intelligent man. It's not like he's saying, oh, I don't think about me or I don't think about life because it's never occurred to me. And oh, look, there goes a butterfly. It's more, I think he's reached the conclusion that going too far down that path is just dangerous territory. And this is a man who spends a lot of time in hotel rooms and flying and has obviously made just almost a de determined effort not to get too wrapped up in that stuff. And there's probably a wisdom in that. I think you've probably hit the, head, uh, the nail on the head there, Joe. I mean, the title of Don't Let the Old Man In seems to be very apt. He's talking about competing with younger players and staying active and, and wanting a, a good 70 days. So he'd, he'd forego 10 years of life if he felt that they were going to be miserable. Uh, he doesn't want to, to see his wife in pain giving birth, even though he loves her and his children. But he, he doesn't, as you write, it seems like he's made a conscious decision. I don't want to engage in that because it's confusing and it's painful. And I'm a golfer and I'm going to play my golf and think deeply about my golf and have a great career and have a, a happy, secure, steady lifestyle. And what is the point in drawing all that confusion on myself? That seems to be his his perspective because you're dead right. I mean, he's he is reflective and intelligent and seems to have made that decision for how he wants to live his life. Now, maybe when he's 60 or 70, you might think a little bit different. And I do like his bit about about uh, about religion because it's convenient yet yeah, when we're all a little bit scared jesus will all believe in god then mm. uh but but other than that we'll, we'll we'll just belt away with our normal lives but i i, I just think as you said the um it's more of a conscious decision n not to think too deeply about mortality and where are you in that do you uh keep the more philosophical thoughts at bay or do you go down that route to be brutally honest, that that type of stuff, um, it's something I wish I had a better handle on because I would be the same. Mortality uh, scares scares the hell out of me, to be honest. And I haven't figured out a way to to think about it without going down the rabbit hole of oh my god, what am I doing with my life and 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 what's it all about? And am I spending my time wisely? That's a big question for me. Am I spending my time wisely? So I I get. Or a Carrington and oh we'll just stick to the day-to-day -day and and especially when you work in sports it's all about being fit and healthy and active and what can you do tomorrow and what did you do yesterday so that that keeps you very focused on the here and now rather than thinking about 
what's the point of it all? Hmm. Dion, we don't know each other especially well, so I don't want to suggest I'm coming at this with some uh, profound knowledge of you. I have you more the opposite to Harrington. I think you are asking the questions a lot. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I guess I probably I I would have um, and uh, yeah, but I think that's and that's not necessarily um, a good thing. I think it is like there is there is you can ask these questions and then you can get into uh, into a rabbit hole mm. in terms of what you think about uh, life and yeah. At the same time, there is there's some con- I think there's always some consolation in in things you discover that you consider are the truth, you know, or like observations or uh, bits of knowledge that actually feel like that, that, that is, that is the kind of, you know, human experience, or that is the human condition. And, um, they are the kind of consolations you find, but I, I don't, I don't sit around, you know, thinking that, you know, we're, uh, uh, you know, the God death is death. Death is only around the corner. I like to go the, uh, Steve Martin used to close his 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 concerts. He used to close, close his live shows with with the line, "We've had a wonderful time here tonight, considering we're all going to die someday." And uh, that's that's what I like. That's that's my that's my philosophy. Okay. Uh, well, so that's Porter Carrington, page eleven, Sunday Independent. Uh, so the footballing uh, front, we'll get to the FAI Cup final in a moment. I know there's been lots of great coverage in advance of this game. Courtney Brosnan, page 66 of the Mail. Cleaner. I think Courtney Brosnan's a really interesting player right now in Irish football because I would say her position is uh, speculated on a good bit. She made a high-profile mistake in the last campaign, which was costly for Ireland. Got away with a big mistake on Thursday, did get away with it, and has new competition coming in for that goalkeeping position. And uh, she's talking to the media about trying to juggle all of that. I found this I found this interesting, Joe, being, you know, from a goalkeeper's perspective as well, albeit in a different sport. But reading her interview with uh, in the mail with Mark Gallagher, I it seemed like someone who was trying to figure out how do I deal with the inherent pressure of being a goalkeeper? Um, because at one point, and, and in a team who are trying to improve and beat better teams, and, and those games can be won on one nil, on one shot at goal. So, so your action in a split second as a goalkeeper, like it or not, can have a massive impact on your team when you're trying to move up through the ranks. Um, and... In some way, like it's a bit of a conundrum. In some ways, she's she's talking about, you know, you have to accept that mistakes are going to happen and um, and and kind of be okay with that and not not let it um, restrict you or or hamper your confidence. And I get all that, and that's true. But the other point is, they do matter at this level, and they 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 can be very very costly. So it will be interesting because, um, as you said, there's a the Megan Walsh. FIFA now cleared Megan Walsh to, yeah. to join the squad, who's very competent and one of the high, highly rated female goalkeepers. So I think that will be that will be a big challenge. Um, and for if somebody who's trying to figure out how do I how do I play with confidence and own the position and all of a sudden there's this new new distinct competition coming into the pack, even though she's stating it's great to have competition, it'll push us on. I think if you're already struggling a little bit, that that might be a big challenge. So it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. But at the end of the day, I mean, that team um, need, need the most solid keeper at the back 
for where they're at at the minute. Yeah, because I felt sorry for Dion in a way. It can't have escaped her attention that the FAI have put a lot of effort into getting Megan Walsh's FIFA clearance over the line over the last while. And she had made a big mistake in Kiev against Ukraine and then more recently had played two very good matches against Sweden and Finland and had been good in the friendly as well the month before that. And you thought, okay, maybe, you know, she's uh, over the hump of the mistake or mistakes last year. And then against Slovakia on uh, Thursday, uh, Mark Gallagher says it was noted she was static and should have been more decisive for the Slovakia goal. And then she was only spared by Louise Quinn's superb intervention on the goal line when she lost focus and kicking the ball out. It was a really heavy touch and basically gave away a goal, but for Louise Quinn getting back and saving the day. And so suddenly you're back to square one and you've got Megan Walsh arriving and like I said I had sympathy for her because that's really really difficult and she talked about being at West Ham and working extensively with a psychologist to deal with the pressure that pressure is now unrelenting for her she tries to keep that number one jersey it is and um, you know you like in, in Mark's piece and there's you know pieces with her in, in a lot of the papers today but in Mark's piece it says you know well while we were sitting in Castle Knock Hotel news filtered through that Megan Walsh had finally received FIFA clearance. And of course, then Brosnan, you know, she has to, she has to say the things that she says about, well, she doesn't have to, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of standard to say, you know, we, it, I, it's great to have competition and all that kind of stuff, but it would, considering the context, it would put her under uh, more pressure. And I, I thought it was interesting too, the Vera Pau comments after the game where she, uh, you know, she's she made it. Now it's probably more to do with the outfield players, but she did suggest you know individuals are going forward and think they can run out of the organisation, and this is what you get. We have to learn that you cannot just do your own thing. So there, uh, whether this is Vera Pau thinking, because you know uh, myself and Cleena were talking about this earlier, like it's 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 not like her to say that kind of thing, but whether she feels is the team can handle that kind of. Uh, you know, jolt that kind of public criticism, or whether she's feeling the pressure herself. Um, you know, who knows? Like, you know, the kind of the conventional wisdom again is that you don't say that kind of thing. But it would also suggest that with Megan Walsh coming in, that there is going to be, you know, it's going to be hard uh, to keep your place with a keeper of that renown coming into the, coming into the reckoning now. Like, what you want as a goalkeeper you want certainty and predictability mm. you know and, and any type of uncertainty around a goalkeeper oh god will, will, will they make an error they, they every now and then so, something happens a costly error that that's terrible with the team and mm. even the the language and the coaching around that person can become now if this everything gets a little bit edgy so that is you definitely don't want a goalkeeper who makes anybody nervous around them um so if there's if there's a, a potential person to step in that is is steady and is predictable then i th- i think it will it will be a challenge for courtney brosnan to keep her at spot the fai cup final on this afternoon st pat's against bows two dublin sides two sides with a rich tradition and history and that's probably been reflected in the coverage all week i think i know you mentioned david snade's piece from yesterday dion has been maybe one of the best ones that you've read across the week dan mcdonald has a great conversation here with Stephen O'Donnell and Patrick Craig, so manager and assistant at St. Pat's. And I hadn't realised, I'm sure it's well known within the League of Ireland, but this is a lifelong friendship in effect, which started when they were two 12-year-olds waiting on the, 
flight over to London, attracted by the Arsenal dream that would bring Liam Brady to their house and make their childhood a ticket to the future. Patrick Craig is a dub, parents from Sligo, Steve O'Donnell, Galwegian with a father from Donegal and a mother from Louth. And so they are in a conversation here with Dan McDonnell. Craig kickstarts a nostalgic discussion with his abiding recollection. I remember his ma introducing us and then Stephen going mad at his ma, he smiles. Why was I hammering her? O'Donnell replies, his memory blank. You just told her to shut up. She was like, this is Stephen. And Stephen O'Donnell says, I was trying to be cool. I was the cool she with the dubs and there was probably a little bit of insecurity. The Dublin lads would be the cool lads, the lads that know the score and it was preconceived they would be better. You had to win their approval. They were seasoned pros at 12. I was probably saying, ma'am, I'll introduce myself. I don't need you to do it. And so on they go. O'Donnell, head coach of St. Pat's with uh, Craig, living away from his wife in Scotland as his assistant. And Steve O'Donnell brought him back in more recent times. But they talk at length, Kleena, about their time together at Arsenal. You get lots, lots of nice insights. I mean, I, I, it's, it's a, a twofold, really. On the one hand, they loved being there. The atmosphere was amazing. They make the point that the top lads, as in, the big Arsenal players, they don't need to be big time. They were such good people. They were secure in themselves. Talks about the likes of Martin Keown had come and talk to them. Then three weeks later, he'd forget the conversation and come back and have the same conversation with them in the canteen. Ray Parler. Uh, Sol Campbell was the friendliest. I told him I was from Galway, the West Coast, and he said it was one of his bucket list uh, jobs to get a camper van and drive around the West Coast of Ireland, something you wouldn't have expected from Sol Campbell. We'd see Dennis Burkamp at the tube stop. Vieira was a nice guy too. They talked about Wenger being calm. So they loved being around this amazing team as youngsters. They also, though, give a real sense of regret. It was pizzas every night and walking by the gym. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this piece, actually, the, the start of it. The, imagining the two 12-year-olds playing a cool on the plane to England, <laughs> giving out to their hands. I just thought it was brilliant. You know, you can imagine them looking at the ground, quiet, man, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it was a lovely story, just an insight into life and football and not not in the, the, the glorious heights of managing Manchester United, but uh, League of Ireland and the relationship with these two two guys, all that they've been through. And and I guess looking back on the opportunities they had in Arsenal, you rightly said that they're thank God if kind of if, if it's one of those if we know if we knew then what we know now, we'd have given it a better shot or yeah. we'd have we'd have made done things a little bit different, which is just life. I mean they and that's the point, isn't it? They make made later in the piece that at 12, 13, 14, 15, people are too young to really understand what they're doing. Um, how can you expect it's only the rare t- teenage boy that would be able to deal with all that and make really good choices at the end of the day you're you're a youngster in, a, in an incredible environment um i just liked it as as how their relationship has developed and i suppose the, the reality of soccer coaching and moving around and and um you know patrick craig is here because his mate is is asked him to come and he's moved away from his family and he loves soccer and he wants to he wants to work with his mate like that's that's the essence of it it's not because of a massive paycheck or anything hmm. dion this uh, piece is uh, as i said part of i think a wider coverage this week that i can't quite remember in advance of an fai cup final i think yeah it's um like it's a very good um moment for for you know, domestic football in Ireland, like there's going to be 38,000 or maybe even more at, at the game today. Um, uh, there are a number of pieces, I, like Tommy Gorman was writing in, in The Currency about it, David McWilliams was writing in The Irish Times about uh, the opportunities, you know, people um, being 
turned off like the, the commercialized world of the Premier League and this being an opportunity for League of Ireland. I think there's a couple more, there are probably other factors in that. I think McWilliams touched on it too, the, you know, that, um, and Tommy, the, about, you know, Brexit and players won't be going abroad, uh, you know, until there, there won't be 12 year olds going to England uh, under, because of Brexit, you know, so there is going to be a change. There are going to be more of these players developing in Ireland. Um, and I think there is a, there is a great appetite for, live sport at the moment because of the last couple of years and that's reflected in people you know going to this game today um and it's great then that the coverage that there has been an understanding that this game at the same time needs to be sold and you need to give people something that means they're going to invest in the game um and dan's piece really does that david snade's piece like I would say David Sainsbury is it's not, it's not just one of the best pieces of the weekend, it's one of the best pieces of the year. Uh, the piece on the 42 yesterday was really, really outstanding piece just because of the the concept of it walking through through Dublin with uh, Chris Forrester and uh, and Keith Buckley and you know the the, the 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 characters they meet during it was just exceptional. But both pieces also managed to pull off something which is quite hard to do, which is interview two people uh, at once and get their stories and intertwine their stories. And again, like I think Dan's piece, it is, it is apt that it does begin with this, you know, the, the, on the plane to London, because, you know, we have for so long seen that as the pathway. And that is, you know, that is where you're going to succeed. And once you don't succeed there, you are a failure, you know, and everything then that comes down after that is somehow you trying to kind of uh, recover, you know, the opportunity. And again, you know, the regrets they have um, about what they did, as Kleena said, like, it's so hard because you are your you're kids, like your kids put into this situation. You're also kids um, and, you know, it's getting, it's even more and more competitive. Your kids being brought into a hothouse, a worldwide uh experiment to see who can survive like it isn't like it is it is such an impossible task now to make it uh as a as a premier league player well it's um, it's interesting even craig towards the end uh, he cuts in when stevie o'donnell's talking about that whole theme and how it's going to change in the league of ireland and 12 13 year olds going over this is right at the very end and craig cuts in ah it's a shambles you're not ready you're not educated or mentally developed it's not until later in life that you realize it there is this sense of going over too young not ready for it and then trying to rescue your career yeah and i was always struck over the years by the players who stayed stayed in ireland a little bit longer um and the confidence but there's, you know there's no there's no you can't say that's why they succeed i remember john o'shea talking about that and john o'shea stayed in ireland to do his leaving uh, before going to Manchester United, and um, you know it's one story, and yeah. you know that worked out for him. But um, it's it's like um, it's a desperate world. I don't I don't think I would want like how how can you resist it? On one hand, like if Arsenal or Manchester United or Liverpool say you're going to uh, we want you to come and play for us. You're going to take, but you're you're basically you're buying a lottery ticket. Mm. But you're except the difference is you're actually altering the course of your life mm. on the base on the purchase of a lottery ticket. You're saying I'm going to drop everything else 
and just clutch this lottery ticket and this lottery ticket is my is my way out and your chances aren't much better um than 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 that um and it is it's a brutal it's a brutal existence and it is better for like i think this 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 hopefully this the cup final today is the start of like there are two clubs that have done an awful lot within their communities uh are are really exemplary in terms of and they're not alone like you know again Sligo Rovers, Tommy wrote about them. At the like, the, the, a lot of a lot of clubs, a lot of League of Ireland clubs have have appreciated this, and I hopefully this is now the start of um, something even bigger for for League of Ireland because um, there's going to be a huge crowd there today, and then the next thing is making sure that people come back because I think if there's one thing, sometimes the League of Ireland. Uh, fails in it is in actually saying it is up to us or, or, or there is a, a faction within the league of ireland that, fa- that, that makes it fair it is up to us to get these people to to the to to to, to engage with the teams yeah um it is not up to you know it's not the failing of the of the irish football fan if they don't if they don't see this it is up to the clubs and the, these clubs have done that bows and saint pat's have really invested in their community like they have uh fan bases that are are really committed um it needs to grow it needs to you know it would be great if it grows now the, the other question is do we do, like having said that maybe we like we're always asking what more can the league of ireland do maybe like one of the things that struck me about these pieces especially david's piece is like this really tight community um that you experience this like now you know, especially in the in the Dublin football sense, like it is a story of Dublin football that interview, and who you you know the, the encounters and the fact that it is such a small world, mm. um, and that is a very important thing too, and that's a precious thing, and maybe it's fine like that, but I think there is a lot more. I think there's a huge appetite for football in this country, and you know what the attendance today shows what what can be done and. Hopefully it continues. Yeah, absolutely. Clean as a, as a last one, I don't. Re- it's a long time pre men's All Ireland football or hurling finals that you get this kind of coverage, predominantly because the setups now are just so wary of the media. You get your media day, and that would be it, and you get a lot of the same quotes. So the coverage here, I mean, how, what would you have gone back 10, 20 years till you'd see something like this in the morning of an All Ireland final, at least? Uh, definitely, definitely, um, and yeah, because because people aren't. I suppose in the GAA now we we're not embracing those personal stories, and we're 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 it's it's been limited, you know. And and in some ways, people don't ask the questions because they know they're not going to get the answers. So now, with with a sport in Ireland that's that's growing, and there's interest in it, and and there's obviously the people involved are committed to trying to open the doors and let people into it. Then you get an, an eagerness to, to talk about your yourself and to talk about the actual reality. People are a little bit more open when they want to kind of encourage people to engage, I think. Like you would have seen that with even women's football a couple of years ago. That there's definitely been a shift in in how people how players and coaches talk around women's football now. Yeah, it's tightened Before up. Before they were a lot more open. It has tightened up, yeah. 
Very good. Well, listen, guys, we didn't get to everything. We're just out of time. But thank you so much, Clean O'Connor, an All-Ireland winner with the Dublin footballers, now very much a coach immersed in the world of GEA and Dion Fanning, associate editor at The Currency. Thanks so much, guys. Much appreciated. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.